This episode of Motley Fool Money is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter the promo code FOOL. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best thing in life are free, but you can from Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser, and from MDP and Supernova, Matt Argusinger and Simon Erickson. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey, hey Chris. Hey. We have got the latest earnings from Wall Street. We will dig into the business of machine vision, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin with the very surprising vote across the pond. The voters of Britain have spoken. By a margin of 52 to 48, they have voted to leave the European Union. Prime Minister David Cameron has resigned, and the ripple effects, Maddie, were felt in markets around the world, including right here in the U.S., where the S&P 500, Dow, and NASDAQ all down more than 3% at various points on Friday. This was a shocker. Shocking. Shocking. I am shocked. <laughs> uh, but you know, really, above all this, if you look at the, the reaction around the world before we get into what actually happened, you know, this is really about uncertainty. You know, we don't know what the economic situation is going to look like for the UK and now the EU. Uh, we don't know what this means for trade, what this means for the free movement of labor and capital. We don't know what this means for new tariffs or regulatory costs. And probably most worrisome, we don't know what's next. So we don't know what other countries in the EU are going to hold referendums with results. There are a few countries that are planning to do that this year. Uh, so is the UK the first domino uh, in a string of countries that might leave the EU? Uh, it's it's really it's quite shocking. Uh, so we don't know the answer to those questions, and especially not knowing those questions, answers to those questions are multinational corporations who are going to be very hesitant to invest capital, hire workers, um, invest really anything to grow their business when there's this um, amount of uncertainty out there, and this could persist for many years. Uh, so as investors, I'd say it's hard to get excited about any company that has a large position in Europe or is looking to grow in Europe um, because. At least for the time being, we there is too much uncertainty on the corporate level and on the investor level. Yeah, and Jason, for me, what really gets me is something that Maddie touched on there, and is the the timing aspect of all of this. It's not only that we don't know what's next; it's we don't know is this unwinding going to take two years, three. We we have no idea how long this is going to take. Yeah, not much of a blueprint for it, and I think that uh, to Maddie's point there, I mean, we have the certainty of the election. Plenty of uncertainty as, as to how this is going to roll out, and I think that's going to probably result in some volatility. I can't help but wonder if we're not going to see down the road here some Brexit regret. I'm going to go ahead and coin that phrase now, because nice. I think we may run into a situation where we'll see more and more. I've seen some of this stuff uh, floating around on Twitter, where people kind of maybe aren't quite sure exactly what they were voting for. I think you kind of get caught in the heat of the moment, and maybe your emotions take control, and you vote one way or the other without really understanding the implications. I'm not entirely convinced that people really do understand the implications of this totally, but regardless, the vote has been made. Um, I think that, uh, of course, there are plenty of businesses where this really doesn't play uh, in, into whether they win or lose. I mean, I think we have plenty of businesses in a million-dollar portfolio, for example, 
where I look at businesses like Ellie Mae and Boston Beer, and we think, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with them at all. It doesn't affect the fundamentals of their business because they don't play in that market. Uh, something like Amazon, perhaps so. But even then, that's a global, well-diversified company that does a lot of different things. Uh, and even social media, Facebook, Twitter, I mean, those businesses actually should be winning from this because that's how all this information is really being disseminated anyway. Uh, so, I mean, you're going to hear a lot of buzzwords, flight to safety, uh, risk off, and, and just sort of put that aside. Don't let these kinds of, of headlines force you to make hasty decisions. I think that's really the bottom line for investors today. And I think combining what Matt and Jason both just said, this is kind of introducing a lot of uncertainty for investors, because now it's a different set of rules. Because UK, in absolute terms, is about 4% of the global economy. Not a huge, huge deal until you consider, if this is the first domino to fall, other countries want to also leave the EU. Banks might need to recapitalize. There could be other dominoes that fall from this. And I think that's the concern that the market has. And that's why we're seeing today's sell off. Well, and we were talking earlier today, Simon. You look at the UK economy, it is, it is almost certainly getting smaller over the next four years or so. Right. So before the show, Chris, you and I were talking about this. Bear with us, listeners, on this analogy of UK's economy as an income statement, right? You're going to have fewer costs if they come out of the EU because they're not going to be having to pay for a lot of these EU programs. They don't directly benefit. Benefit from. But the top line, the revenue in the GDP is also going to decrease too, as it's going to be harder for those trade restrictions with other countries. Yeah, and, and I think just speaking of Europe as a whole, there's the free movement of labor and capital, which has really was the basis for the EU. And, and now that's been put into question. And, and anytime, anytime I think there's restrictions on that. And I think we view the free movement of labor and capital as a as a, as progress in the world, in the economy in, in general. And when we see we're seeing sort of the first major retraction of that from a western developed country and that we've ever seen. And so it's really unprecedented and it, it is a little bit scary. I mean I, I mean I agree with Jason. I, I'm you got this is all a lot of this is noise, a lot of this is, looks pretty scary and at the end of the day we're we're investing in great companies that can, you know, that, that will do well with any sort of regulatory environment over time. But it is a little bit scary when there is this much uncertainty, I think, introduced in the yeah, market. Given the currency effects here, I kind of feel like I need an impromptu trip over there to play some golf because it would be pretty cheap. <laughs> well, right it would be now. very cheap to do that. We were trading emails late last night as it was beginning to become clear that this is how the vote was going to go. I'm curious if at any point, either late last night or at any point uh, today, you were looking at all the red on your stock screens and, and looking maybe even hoping for one stock to fall. Because I know, just hearing from some of our listeners on Twitter and through email, uh, a lot of our members were thinking about this in terms of, hey, there, there are going to be some good businesses on sale here. Well, we, yeah, as, as the MDP team, we were, we were talking last night, we were talking this morning, we have a list of about a dozen companies that, uh, and I won't reveal many of them, uh, we, we talk about a lot of them on the show, but a bunch of them where we have really a price range we'd like to pay for these stocks. And, and we're looking all the time for a correction like this. Now, I think uh, this week's correction probably wasn't as sharp as it could have been, uh, and so we didn't really get the prices we were looking for. But we know what we want to buy and what price, and we're waiting for days like this. And as long as they don't have huge, huge exposure to Europe or to UK, I mean, stocks that are going on sale that aren't directly correlated to that could be an opportunity. Absolutely. 
The second most surprising story of the week is Tesla Motors offering to buy Solar City for $2.8 billion in stock. Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla Motors. He is also the chairman of the board of Solar City. So, boy, that must have been a quick meeting, Simon. Wow, right? <laughs> Elon Musk talking to himself. Is this a good idea? Well, let's think about it, Elon. You're a Solar City guy, and you don't like this deal for sure. I don't, but first, I'm, I'm shocked. To, to Any other week, this would have been the most important yes. news. It's just shocking to hear this is the second biggest story of the week. Um, I don't think this is a great deal for Solar City from the valuation perspective. I think that it does make sense strategically, uh, definitely for Elon Musk and his vision of what he wants the future to look like, to fold Solar City into the larger Tesla deal. But I just I'm hung up on the valuation on this, Chris, right now for a variety of reasons. Um, I'll just go through two really quickly. The first is there's a large percentage of the valuation of Solar City today that's tied up in existing contracts they've already signed and the ink is dried on. So when you consider the amount of growth that this deal, which at the high end was at a high of $28.50 per share of Solar City, down significantly now that Tesla's price has fallen, but it's just not giving enough credit for the growth tear that Solar City's been going on. And considering also it's going into a multi-trillion dollar uh, market, which is the electric energy um, industry of the United States. And the second thing is I just don't think it's the right time right now. You've got 50% of the public float of Solar City sold short right now. You've seen a lot of political headlines that are anti-solar in the news. And I just don't think this is the time that you want to put your company up for sale, especially considering Solar City was up to $57 a share at the end of last year. I just don't think the timing's right. Well, and Matty, you look at what happened to Tesla Motors stock this week, down more than 10%. It, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find someone on Wall Street who likes this deal in either direction. Right. I, th- I think it makes a lot of sense for Tesla, and I'll, I'll get into that in a second. But you're right. The market doesn't like the deal, because I think they look at Tesla, especially taking on uh, you know, integrate, integrating SolarCity at the same time while they're trying to build a gigafactory. They're, they've got billions in capital needs of their own. They're trying to meet this tremendous demand for Model 3 cars in a few years. And to integrate SolarCity at this point would, would really you know, muddle things up. At the same time, I think this was Elon Musk's plan all the time. I think he set out to build not just a motors company or an automobile company, but an energy company. And and he's built the stationary storage power part of it. He's built the electric car. He's never had the electric generation part of it. That's sort of the trifecta. Solar City gives them that. Solar City is the largest Solar City panel. Of course, he's on the the board. He's he's the cousins of the the CEO and the CTO. I mean, it, it, they're obviously, I think this is always going to happen. I agree with Simon. I think Tesla. I think Musk recognizes that the market A doesn't understand Solar City is probably undervaluing Solar City. It's his opportunity. It's Tesla's opportunity to make a deal at this price. Uh, so not good for Solar City shareholders. I agree, but for Tesla, this is this is a deal that probably makes sense. And I might add too that Elon Musk has excused himself from this vote. He owns 20% of Tesla, 20% of Solar City also, and he and his fellow board member Antonio Banderas, excuse me, Antonio Gracias, are both <laughs> excusing themselves from this vote, making it even more important for individual shareholders. I think that's a good move, and certainly Elon Musk has a, a largely a very good reputation in the business community. I think that's also a good thing because if this were any other CEO. In fact, if this were a lot of other CEOs that we've talked about in the past, this wouldn't pass the smell test. Right. The fact that one person is the chairman of one company and the CEO of the other and says, oh, I'm going to put my two toys together. I think it's very difficult to figure out, honestly. I mean, Solar City is one of those businesses that I. Uh, Maddie mentioned the market not really understanding it. I don't. I don't think that's a very big leap there. I think it's a very, very difficult business to fully understand. There are a lot of dots to connect. There are abundant capital needs that this business is going to need for many, many years to come. So I think at least for the business's 
sake, it probably makes sense to be a part of of Tesla's uh, business, so to speak. I mean, I think Solar City and Tesla together that makes sense. It maybe takes Solar City from under the microscope that it's under now. For shareholders, yeah, this this is probably a bad deal. I mean, it, it, it's it's the shares are, are far lower than where than where they were just a few months ago. And I think again, it requires such a long term outlook when you talk about these twenty year contracts and the cash flows that come from that. It's just a really tough business to fully understand. I think it's a good lesson for investors to at least say, hey, listen, if you get into a situation like that where you're with the business that you like what it stands for, you're not quite sure how all the pieces work together, it's okay to maybe be a part of it, but make sure you position size accordingly because you still need to be able to answer those questions. And if you just put your put your faith in leadership, that's fine. I think Elon Musk is, is an exceptional leader, but but they're not always going to be that way. And just to put some numbers to like Jason was saying about those future contracts that they already have 20 years signed with Solar City, the net present value of the future cash flows related to those when you subtract out all of the costs and all of the debt. So the value to us in present value for shareholders is about twenty dollars per Solar City share today, and they're looking to add in my in my model between five and seven dollars per share this next year. So that's one of the reasons I think that we're considering this to be an undervalued deal for Solar City. Last question on Tesla Motors, Maddie. When you look at the next, I'm going to say, two years for this company, does a deal like this amp up the pressure on Elon Musk with respect to things like getting the Gigafactory online and delivering, by the way, those 500,000 vehicles in 2018? I think it does, because they're going to need capital. Solar City needs capital. So if they integrate Solar City, I think the capital needs of the combined company only go higher, and certainly the risks go higher as well. Again, Long term, and if you you know if you believe what Elon Musk says, he thinks this opportunity is a trillion dollar company someday. I mean, you know, he's throwing numbers way out there. We love that because we love Elon Musk, but the risks have certainly been amped up. I think with this deal. And Chris, I would like to propose the combined company would have the ticker MUSK. I'm just saying. <laughs> sign off on that. Coming up, some earnings news you won't want to miss, and a board member we can't seem to find. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Simon Erickson. Guys, let's get to some of the week's earnings news. Bed Bath & Beyond stock hitting a five-year low after a first quarter that missed on just about everything you can measure, Jason. <laughs> they missed on profit, revenue, same-store sales. This was not a good quarter. Did they miss on the Beyond part, too? I was going to say, <laughs> let's not dismiss the Beyond here. That's the real catalyst. Uh, Chris, I feel like we've been calling this one for the past probably four or five years. We've been doing market foolery and Motley Fool money. So, this is, I think, to, to us in this room, not a big surprise at all. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is a business in decline either. Uh, certainly, it has hit its growth limit. I mean, you see the top line uh, revenues are flat. It looks like they're starting to shrink. Margins are telling the tale. They've fallen and they can't get up. And, and I don't know what they do in the face of this new e commerce market. To, to really turn this around. I know one thing they tried to do um, is, is recently buy the, the web property One King's Lane, which a time ago, in 2014, just about hit uh, unicorn status as, as a billion-dollar privately managed uh, business. It's been it's been a bit of a downfall since then, and One King's Lane has more or less become irrelevant. And it's so irrelevant that with the, the, the purchase from Bed Bath & Beyond, when they were asked about the price, they said, well, we bought it for a price that was not material to our financials. And so, 
that tells me really kind of all we need to know. It's not really something that's going to be leading this business forward. I don't think it's going to have a material effect on their financials in the years to come, because I think really One Kings Lane is a business that also has become more or less irrelevant. So, I don't see any reason in the world why you would need to invest in Bed Bath & Beyond today. And I'm gonna I'm gonna keep that thumbs down in caps for a little while longer. FedEx posted a loss for the fourth quarter due to the cost of acquiring TNT, the Dutch package delivery company. You back out that charge though, Maddie. This seemed like a pretty good quarter, but the stock was down this week. Yeah, solid solid quarter, and you know, solid fiscal 2016 for FedEx. I mean, you can draw pretty much a straight line from the growth of overall e-commerce to FedEx's ground division, which grew 28 uh, percent in the year. Um, and that's the big driver of FedEx's overall revenue, so which climbed six percent. Big thing here for me though was the fuel expenses, which dropped thirty-six percent during the year. That helped the company report a sixty-five percent surge in operating profits. The stock was down. I mean, I'd say you know if global stocks weren't imploding on Friday, I'd say FedEx was higher on this news because it's pretty solid. Again, though, a company that faces some competition coming forward, and with the with the Brexit and things like that. A little murkier on the uh, on the express part of the business and the air part of the business, but on the ground part of the business, all you know, firing in all cylinders, as uh, Ron Gross might say. BlackBerry lost money in the first quarter, but sales are improving in the company's software business. Simon, glimmer of hope or no? No, that's <laughs> lipstick on a pig. I think. Don't cupcake it, Simon. Jeez, revenue down thirty nine percent, Chris. The story for this one is ouch. BlackBerry completely has missed the consumer market, in my opinion. They focus too much on corporate and government up front. They missed the opportunity that Samsung and that Apple fully took advantage of. And I think that those two are too far ahead of them now. I'd stay away from BlackBerry. Lululemon Athletica founder Chip Wilson is no longer involved in the company's day-to-day operations, but he is still a major shareholder. He recently blamed long-standing board members for Lululemon's lackluster performance. Rhoda Pitcher, who has been on the board for more than a decade, was unavailable for comment. And that's because, guys, nobody can seem to find her. Uh, her bio on the website says she has a master's degree in organization development from University Associates, which does not appear to be an accredited school. And the school's address uh, turns out to be a residential home in Tucson, Arizona. Uh, her consulting firm, Rota Pitcher Incorporated, has no website, contact information, or identifiable clients. She's not responding to phone calls. Is there a ghost? Is there a, a fictional person on Lululemon's board? Chris, listen. All we ask of Lululemon is that their board be as transparent as their yoga pants. No more, no less. Okay, I don't think this is too much to ask. This story has been going on for a week, and the company put out a statement on Thursday that basically said, eh, "Trust us, she exists." <laughs> this, this is this is such a strange story. I I just think if she does great. Roll her out. I know that's a bad word, but I mean, just let put the woman on TV. Do something because it, it's really mind-boggling here. You almost think I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but you almost think back in the day, IPO setting up the original company and having and the need to have an independent board of directors. I'm not saying the inventor, but they certainly kind of had her as a placeholder. She's not a real director. She's a real person, probably. It's it's strange. Chris, I almost hope she is a ghost because if she is real and she's on the compensation committee, this is terrible corporate governance for Lululemon, right? I mean, they're they're rewarding the company for revenue, gross margin, and operating margin, all of which are not spectacular. They've been steadily declining for the last four years. So either she doesn't exist, or they really need to improve how they're compensating their executives. Rhoda, if you're out there and listening, please drop us an email: radio at fool.com. <laughs> Coming up next, Matt and Simon talk with the CEO of a cutting edge machine vision company. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. But it was just my imagination Running away with me 
This episode of Motley Fool Money is brought to you by Casper Mattress. Steve Broido, our man behind the glass, how are you sleeping these days? I am sleeping fairly well. Well, like me, you have children, so you know that a good night's sleep is about the most important thing in the world. And I got good news for anyone who's looking to get a better night's sleep because Casper's mattresses are obsessively engineered. We got an obsessively engineered mattress at a fair price. Can I interest you in that, Steve? I would be interested in anything that is obsessively engineered. Absolutely. <laughs> Here's the great thing about Casper. You can buy it easily online, so you don't have to go to the showroom. Anytime you buy a mattress, you got to go to the showroom. You got to line a bunch of different mattresses. Not with Casper. They offer free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period, so it's completely risk-free. You can get a twin mattress for $500 or a king-size mattress for $950, and you can save an additional $50 towards a mattress purchase just by going to casper.com fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com fool and use the promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Cognex is a company in the business of machine vision. At our recent Fool Fest investing conference, Matt Argusinger and Simon Erickson sat down with Cognex CEO Robert Willett in front of a live audience. Robert kicked things off by explaining just what in the heck Cognex does. Well, Cognex is in the business of machine vision, so it's like helping computers see. Uh, the technology works on the idea that um, you have a digital imager, like in your smartphone, uh, pixels and they're capturing uh, light as it hits those pixels and sends an image to a processor where we have a lot of software operating. And I would liken it a little bit to your head. Think of your head for a moment. You have an eye. It's gathering information about the world around you. And, uh, and that, that information looks different if you think about it based on the light, the angle, the speed of movement, color all kinds of things that are going on. So the data you gather is complex, and we as humans are pretty amazing at making sense of that data. Um, Cognex technology is software. A lot of it is optics, helps you gather that image, but really software algorithms that run on processes that make sense of them. You know, the phone in your pocket, the car you drove in here, the coffee pod you used to make coffee this morning couldn't, is made with Cognex Vision. And we saw, at least in your most annual, or most recent annual report, that Apple is the largest customer of Cognex, about 18% of revenue. Maybe we don't speak specifically about Apple, but can you tell us about how Cognex is working with consumer electronics companies? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, yeah, it's in our, in our 10K. We don't like to talk about customers specifically because we have a lot of kind of tight roadmap and technology alliances with, with the most sophisticated manufacturers in the world. Uh, but consumer electronics has been our largest market for the last couple of years, and along with automotive. That's our, those are our big markets. Um, we work with consumer electronics companies on scaling up manufacturing and implementing new features. In, uh, in consumer electronics. So let's say you think of your smartphone a couple of years back, a lot of, uh, lot of uh, you know, starting to put cameras on the front side of the phone as well as the back side of the phone, a lot of other bringing in metal casing, you know, a lot of technology in terms of lithium ion batteries going into those products. There's a huge amount of investment and capital deployed in uh, bringing those new features and technologies to, uh, to market and we work really closely with the companies that do that. It's, very, it's a very exciting field to operate in because um, just the sort of intensity and short product life cycles that go on in those industries are, are pretty amazing. So you literally have millions of people in China manufacturing those products. They're scaling up manufacturing in a matter of months. 
and uh, we're there working uh, to implement our technology to make some of those things couldn't even be done without vision technology and the manufacturing process. We, uh, we at Cognex like to, to use the metaphor, it's like um, building an airplane while it's going down the runway. You've got so many people kind of deployed to get a, a product into manufacturing, so it's exciting, it's intense. Very exciting. Uh, in your 2015 shareholder letter, you talked about the slowdown in industrial markets, uh, big customers delaying orders, and this, these are things we've heard from a lot of companies, particularly those kind of serving or involved in manufacturing. And I'm just wondering if where things stand today, are they, are they better or worse than they were in 2015? Or where, where is the market right now? Yeah, I think, I think the U.S. Um, industrial market particularly has been in something of a recession for the last few quarters. Um, and I, I see signs of improvement going on uh, is, is where I think it is. There's some underlying industries that have been relatively strong. Automotive, for instance, if you think of automotive, there's so much investment going into uh, new energy efficient engines, uh, more autonomous driving features in cars. So big, ambitious roadmaps. Cars on the road are pretty old, you know, and they're getting upgraded. China, it's a huge growth market for automotive. So, so like industries like that are lifting. I think, um, but uh, American manufacturing has been under a lot of pressure from the strong dollar, right? Um, China, China's market's slowing down. So we've seen that. What, it, what we saw, we published our, our quarter one results. They were better than people were expecting. So I think we're cautiously optimistic about the outlook in general. And so you mentioned uh, China a few times, and of course, in terms of automotive, consumer electronics, probably by now the biggest economy in the world for, for those markets. How important is China for co today for Cognex and certainly in the future? Oh, man, I'm going, on, I'm going there on Monday. So there you go. <laughs> I go I'm, I'm there a lot. Uh, so it's very, very important. Um, uh, China is, was about half of our growth, um, incremental growth in the last few years. When I joined the company in, uh, in 2008, we were doing about $4 million of business in China. Um, last year, when you count the technology that was purchased for use in China and what we sold in China, well north of 100 million. All organic growth, right? Um, China, I think, is so important to high-tech manufacturing in the future for uh, a number of reasons. One is the, uh, the labor market is changing so quickly, so it's getting smaller. In China, more people are retiring than entering the workforce because of the one-child policy they had. Um, the cost of labor is going up faster than productivity. So wages are going faster, up faster than um, people are able to make things. Um, and then what's getting made, particularly in electronics, is getting too small for human hands to make the next generation. So these are a lot of great conditions for machine vision, advanced automation to, uh, to grow. And that's why we, we see a lot of, it may be slowing down, still growing you know, twice the speed of any large economy in the world, and our segments still have a, a great future, we think. Well, I wonder what that means for the U.S. manufacturing economy. So, you know, we, we've heard certainly over the last few years that there could be somewhat of a renaissance maybe in U.S. manufacturing, especially if, if technology sort of enables us to be more productive here in the U.S. versus say, uh, developing countries. Do you, do you see that happening? Do you see maybe a lot of manufacturing coming back to the United States? I'm sure D Donald Trump and some others would probably prefer to see that. But, or do you continue to see it kind of outsourcing to developing countries? Uh, well, I think we all love to see more manufacturing coming back to the United States. It's not going to be the manufacturing that left. It's going to be different stuff, right? I think there are, there are some pockets of real innovation and potential for American manufacturing. They're in areas like robotics, 
a lot of really great stuff going on in robotics uh, with a lot of different uh, companies here. Um, manufacturing things like electric, electric technology, electric cars, right, also, so uh, it's another area. And, you know, artificial intelligence, um, certainly, and, uh, you know, 3, 3D technology, um, virtual reality technology. So I see some of those being areas of really exciting growth and, and, and value creation in America. But do I think, like, you know, millions of people are going to be going back into working with their hands, assembling stuff in America in the next few years? No. You mentioned virtual reality. Uh, let's follow up on that just a little bit. Look into your crystal ball, if you will. Do you see there's, there's opportunities for a company like Cognex and virtual reality or even augmented reality? The, there are, Cognex kind of plays um, in various segments related to that, right? So there's a lot of really interesting um, electronic chipsets, technology being developed for the consumer electronic space, right? Which will, you know, probably will, you know, will be wearing those. Um, headsets, you know, sometime in the future, and they'll be a big part of our lives. I don't know when, but some of the innovation that's going on there, we're bringing back into Cognex, and 3D vision is an interesting area for us. Generally, our, 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 um, our technology has been going to market in 2D, just X and Y. Now, um, we like to shine structured light, like a laser, onto what we want to image in production, and that gives us like a theta, a third dimension that we can look at. And um, it's got to the stage where chip technology is fast enough that we can process all that data in a way that's meaningful to production light speeds. So, so that's an area where we're benefiting from all the, uh, the, the uh, virtual reality stuff that's going on. The other area is you know, consumer electronics companies are, are important and large customers of ours, and uh, they've got to figure out how to make those things, right? And, you know, and we collaborate with really all the big names in, uh, in consumer electronics on their plans to ramp up production. Stuff is really difficult. You know, these, how are they going to make those things precisely? How are they going to have the energy performance you know, uh, going on um, in them that's, that's effective, et cetera? So we see that as a growth market. It's not a big market for us today, but we're always looking for you know, what, what are the big trends in consumer electronics as re relates to manufacturing that will be big for us in three to five years. And another big growth market you had mentioned is life sciences, right? Just entering the life sciences market. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing there? Yeah, so, um, so you go to the doctor, they take your blood, right? it goes into that little test tube, off it goes, you don't think where it goes. Well, it goes into a lab, uh, it could be in a hospital or elsewhere, and it goes inside a big machine, like maybe a half million dollar machine, and it gets analyzed. And as it passes through that machine, there's a lot of things it wants to do. It's almost like a little factory. So vision can be reading your name on the test tube. It might be looking at how the blood or uh, the sample changes color when a reagent goes into it. And it might be guiding the uh, automation inside that equipment so the test tube isn't damaged, creates a biohazard, shuts down the machine, etc. So those are kind of, that's an interesting market, one we've been working on for a while. We sell a tiny um, vision engine into that market, um, and uh, we like it because those machines are regulated by the FDA. Um, they, it's a long process to get approved, but once the machine is approved, it has a long life, seven to 11 years, and it's a nice continuous stream of revenue for us. As an investor looking at Cognex, what would you say is the, the biggest challenge for you or the biggest risk for Cognex in, say, the next several years? I think. We, 
we, we love um, our culture. Like, I think our company is as good as the um, brilliant engineers who come to work for us and love working at Cognex, right? So that's, that's key. And so I think what we have to do as we get bigger, and we've been growing a lot, is not lose the kind of entrepreneurial, we call it a move fast spirit, um, where uh, we encourage engineers to take risks, we encourage them to, uh, to make decisions, um, and also, uh, yeah, and we have this play hard culture, we might talk about it, which is designed to really kind of make engineers feel like they're doing their best work, they're loving working at Cognex, they're supported, and uh, they're making the most of their careers. So as we get bigger, probably my most important role is to make sure we don't lose that and we build on it. And we don't become kind of a boring ho-hum ho company. We want to be an exciting, growth, high-quality company. And I think a measure of that might be our gross margins. If you look at Cognex's gross margins, they're in the mid to high 70% range. And we think that's a measure of the value that we're creating for our customers, or even for society in general, the quality of our innovations, right? So, um, you know, my, you know when, I, when I worry about stuff, it's like those gross margins go down, our, our workplace is boring, we're not recruiting the best and, and the brightest into Cognex. So that's, uh, that's, that's the risk. It does seem like you do have the best and the brightest. Saw that 36% of the company is about engineers right now. About 37% have got an advanced degree, and you guys are spending about 13% of revenue on R&D. Yep. Can you talk a little bit more about how that process works, from creating new ideas um, to prioritizing your R&D spend and then commercializing products? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, so we, we have a lot of people out of MIT and top, top engineering schools work at, at Cognex, and uh, you know, we really listen to them. You know, we really try to um, have them understand what's going on in the broader um, computer science, artificial intelligence world. Um, and we go through it, but then we also go through probably what you would consider a very rigorous planning process in the business. It's kind of on an, an annual cycle. Around this time of year, we're getting our top people together and we're kind of blue skying about where is the business, where is the industry going, what interesting innovations and technology do they want to work on, what do we see in the competitive landscape. We're mapping the markets that we uh, serve and compete in. And, uh, and then it kind of starts to narrow down to a three-year product plan for our major product areas. And then we apply rigor about, um, in a simple way, what's it gonna cost engineering-wise to get products to market? What do we think a four-year gross margin uh, is gonna be on those products? And we just do a four-year cash to decide which we think are the best things to work on. So we got that, and then we have a pretty large kind of blue sky budget where we're working on stuff that is very long-term and it's very exciting, and uh, we don't quite know where it goes. And we have some geniuses in the business, always wish we had more, but we give them a lot of free reign to innovate and, uh, and do stuff. And it seems like you're also having a lot of fun, too. We, we saw your shareholder communication. If anybody gets a chance to look at this, it is Back to the Future themed. Uh, Rob, I see that you are Marty McFly. I am. And Dr. Bob is, <laughs> is the professor. Um, yeah. Seems like you guys are having a lot of fun. Can you actually tell us about how you met Dr. Bob the first time and how you actually came over to Cognex? Yeah, yeah. So Dr. Bob is a very uh, idiosyncratic, zany um, inventor, was a, a professor at MIT and uh, started Cognex and, and, and grew it. And today he's the chairman, he lives in, in California, he's the chairman, but he also carries the title chief culture officer. 
right? So he's you know, all about kind of making sure that culture is uh, alive and well at Cognex. Um, so it was back in 2007, I was working for Danaher, very uh, large, very well-managed industrial company, and I think focusing on organic growth projects for them had a title with innovation in it. And so I thought, you know, I, I gotta go visit these guys at Cognex and think how I can get some of their innovation juice um, f flowing for my business. Um, and I went, <clears throat> went over to, uh, to, to Boston, sat down, and we, we all came in for Danaher, and we, we actually all looked a little like this. We were probably wearing ties. And the guys from Cognex were on the other side of the table. They were wearing black turtlenecks that said Cognex here. And I, 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 sort of, I said to them, you look like you're out of the Blue Man group. They kind of did. <laughs> Anyway, we got chatting, like 20 minutes into the meeting, Dr. Bob says, stop, uh, I'd like to clear the room, I just, I just wanna to talk to Rob one-on-one. -on -one. 20 minutes in, he's like, I'm looking for someone to run this company, um, and I think it's probably you. So, yeah. So, um, he, um, the guy is like so intuitive, so, so smart, so opinionated, right? So, uh, and it, it's never boring. I, um, I, I sometimes like to say to people, um, he's everything I'm not. And if we were in the English uh, government system, I would be the prime minister, he would be the queen, right? So. <laughs> Rob, well, thank you very much for Great. giving us some fools some time. Thank you. Up next, we'll get to the stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I've got as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Simon Erickson. You can find past episodes of Motley Fool Money and all of The Motley Fool's podcasts online at podcasts.fool.com. We've also got a listener survey we would love your help with. It'll help us serve you better. It takes just a couple of minutes, and you can do it anonymously. So if you could help us out, we'd appreciate it. The survey is online at podcasts.fool.com. Time to get to the stocks on our radar, and we'll bring in our man Steve Brodo in from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Matty Argusinger, you're up first. I'm going uh, with TripAdvisor, T-R-I-P. It's a company we own a small piece of in million-dollar portfolio. I noticed the travel stocks are just getting crushed uh, after Brexit, but look, it's not as if UK leaving the EU is going to prevent people from traveling to Europe or getting visas to travel. Uh, and I just think that's a little bit unfair. The closer TripAdvisor gets to $60 a share, the more we like it in MDP. Steve Broyden, question about TripAdvisor? What does TripAdvisor look like, let's say, 25 years from now? Wow. They're the only place, the only place people go for all their trip and hotel needs. I have no idea, Steve, but I think it's going to be a massively bigger company uh, in, in by then. Jason Moser, what are you looking at? I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to look like in 25 years. Um, okay, so uh, listeners probably feel like it maybe took something away from them with Bed Bath & Beyond, so I'm going to give them something here with Wayfair. Wayfair is the reason why Bed Bath & Beyond is facing so much trouble there. Uh, ticker is W. Uh, but again, Wayfair is the online retailer for home furnishings. We've talked about it before, like the business model. They don't carry a lot of inventory. Uh, very much a logistics and customer service company focused on kind of building that same type of business that Amazon is building. Uh, investing more in the last mile to control that service uh, experience themselves. A big opportunity in the U.S. with around 67 million households. They're expanding internationally, particularly Western Europe, uh, which, which really more or less doubles that market opportunity. And in August, I think this is actually kind of encouraging, they're starting up a wedding registry, which, if you're like me, Chris, and you remember those days, Man, that's pretty cool. You go in there and just tell people to buy you stuff, and they buy it. That could be a big money maker for uh, Wayfair down the line. So, 
Let's take a look at it. Steve, question about Wayfair? How does how did Wayfair sell something that's almost impossible to sell online and do it well? I mean, furniture is the worst possible thing you can sell, except maybe for farm equipment. Yeah, and I think that's interesting, Steve, because I think most people look at Wayfair as just furniture, but it's really home furnishings. Only about 25% of the sales are those bulk furniture items. A lot of it boils down to towels, dishes, comforters, blankets, yada, yada, yada. So, it's more than just furniture, It's Steve. furniture and beyond. I, I was just going to say, that's the end. Beyond. That's the beyond. <laughs> Simon Erickson, what are you looking at? Uh, Chris, I'm going with Verisk Analytics, VRSK. Uh, first of all, thanks to Emily Flippin. Uh, she's been interning with MDP this summer, did some great work on this pick, so thank you, Emily, for that. Uh, Verisk is a data analytics provider that's very good at predicting things. So initially, this business was helpful for insurers who were making actuarial models to predict losses and risks, but there's a lot more things being predicted these days, including fraud detection for e-commerce, safety operations for in- the energy industry, and even in healthcare and predicting upcoming conditions. So I think there's a really good future for Verisk in the, in coming up. Steve? Can they predict the next president of the United States? I'm going to have to ask him about that one, Steve. I cannot answer that question today. That would be huge. <laughs> Steve, you got a stock you want to add to your watch list? I'm, I got a catalog from Wayfair recently, and it piqued my interest. Hey, now! Ah. All right, Simon Erickson, Jason Moser, Matt Argersinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Next week.